0: Reading today from 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. Bibles in your seats, you can find that on page 10392. This is God's word. Hear it. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him, return away from, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says, finally, all of you. You know what it means when a pastor says, finally? Uh, Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, for Peter, it does mean something here. Peter is bringing a section of his letter to a close. It's a section that started back in chapter 2, verse 13. And I've been reminding of you this week after week because it's important to see what he's saying here in its context. So this section is about how God has set us to live as lights in the world. He has said to let your, let your conduct be honorable amongst the world, so that even unbelievers can see it, and that they may glorify God by the good works that they see in you on the day of his visitation. And then Peter goes on to say what that looks like in three specific situations that have to do with our relationship to authority. And it's under the heading of submission. So he calls us to submit to those in government, for slaves to submit to their masters, and for there to be submission in marriage, wives to husbands and husbands to wives, And now he says, finally, all of you. He doesn't use the word submission, but that word finally ties it together so that you can see it as part of this this section of his letter that has to do with our witness to the world that is lived out in our relationship to one another. And Peter in the first verse here gives five different words, just single words, The English translation uses several words to translate those, but he gives one word to describe what this relationship every one of you are to have towards each other. And uh, then verses 9 through 12 that are of all one piece that I'll also give one word to that could be something of of a coat hook that you can hang these ideas on. And as part of something of a symmetry, I'm going to, in a sense, say the same thing that I did about uh, about wives and husbands and now everyone. Everyone, live in such a way that the world may see the light of Christ in you. Live in such a way that the world may see the light of Christ in you. The first word that I'll give you is the word harmonious. Literally, or as the translation is given here in the New King James, it says, be of one mind. Be of one mind, or be united in mind. It literally means to be of the same thinking with each other. Now, when you hear that, you might get the wrong idea. You might get the idea that Peter is saying that, that, you come to have the very same ideas as everyone else and you never think or behave any differently as if there's some kind of hive mentality. Fans of Star Trek will recognize the idea of the Borg being assimilated into the Borg so that there's no variation and the thought of the hive is the thought of every, everyone in the Borg. And isn't that kind of the nervousness you think that you face when you when you consider what submission is like? You're afraid that you'll be absorbed and disappear into the collective. But that's not what the biblical idea of submission is, and it's not the idea of biblical unity. God has so ordered the world that he protects you as an individual. Back, true biblical teaching protects you from from domination. It protects you from being the doormat that we all are afraid of becoming. To be to merely serve some other's purpose, rather in God's ordered society, there is a respect for a variety of gifts, a variety of individual individuals that come together and promote something of a harmony of united voices that have different parts that's why I give the word harmonious as a summary of this idea that we are all brought together you can hear it when we sing together there are many different voices even if we all sing the same tune Those different voices are joined together, but when we sing in parts, there are different harmonious parts that are brought together, and they they come and they mesh together in a great harmony. We can see this in the church as well, as Paul describes it. There is one church, there is one body, to use his analogy like a physical body that has lots of different parts. But all of those different parts come together in one body. And all of those individual parts have an important role to play. But it's a harmonious role. There is a building up of the whole as the individuals use their gifts in a way that understands the unity that we have in Jesus Christ and in submission to him. I've been reading and commenting uh, how the uh, how the author Harold uh, says this, and I, I found it very good. He says when diverse characters cooperate in loving righteousness, the result is neither a dull monotony nor a disintegrating chaos but a melodic blending of diversity into a higher and more richly complex unity. We're afraid of those things, aren't we? Of the dull monotony that we think unity implies as if there can't be any self-expression or the Chaos, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, if we think we should let go and uh, everybody express. This type of same-mindedness, this type of harmony, is part of the mutual love and submission that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Under the leadership of Jesus. Remember how I've defined Submission, as Doriani has defined it, the arranging ourselves underneath someone else's leadership or authority. In this case, you can apply this in the body of Christ. You can apply it in how you relate to each other. Even in a a small congregation like ours, there is a tendency for for division and for thinking wrongly about each other, and that breeds contention and breeds uh, breeds division, and it does start with our thinking. Echoing here some words of Dave in our Sunday school class, where our thinking produces futility and and sinful actions. You can apply it in other relationships as well. Your relationship in your marriage, parents to children, children to parents, brothers and sisters in the church. What this encouragement gives you is to listen for the harmonies, to rejoice in those harmonies that are found, to strive to love the rich, complex, harmonious unity that we enjoy in Christ. The second word Peter uses, I will, uh, I will use the word sympathetic, it comes in your Bible as having compassion for one another, and it's literally just that word, sympathetic, and I love this word because it means to suffer with someone, literally to suffer with that individual. Same thing as compassion, to show uh, show sympathy or show passion with someone it has in mind both the emotions and actions that sympathy imply. And the emotions here are really important. I say that because when someone suffers, you might tend to want to look away from that suffering. You may be afraid of saying something wrong, you may, may, may not know what to do or what to say, you may be worried that, uh, uh, that you might misstep, and it's just hard to, to view or to be with someone who is going through something hard. But the bond of Christ leads us to, to know and be known in the body, in the congregation, to know and be known. Remember, God has made us to know and be known by him, but also each other. And that implies that uh, that there is a, a certain presence with someone who's going through what is hard. I confess that, uh, that this can can be a difficult uh, difficult task to, to be present. But I would set that in front of you as part of promoting a mutual unity, a mutual compassion for each other. And Sometimes our sympathy calls us to action, to bear one another's burdens, to share financially with those who have lost everything, to provide a service like a a meal or mowing someone's yard when they are pressed by other urgent needs. It may lead you to be an advocate for that person, someone who uh, doesn't know what to do to address the trouble that they are in. They don't know what is available to them. Or they may have been slighted or some injustice done against them. And so you may be called by sympathy to act for that individual, to be their advocate. I want to ask, does does this sound like submission? It doesn't really, does it? Especially when we think of of submission in terms of as the world makes it. Remember the idea of worldly submission is to bear down on someone until they submit and bend to your will. But that is not what godly submission is. It isn't demeaning. It isn't coercion. It makes us think, doesn't it? And I hope it reshapes your idea of what godly submission looks like. How can I arrange myself in this situation so as to know that individual that is suffering? How can I arrange my schedule, my time? my resources, to know that individual, to be present with them? And how can I help that individual to, to know that they are part of the body of Christ? It's through sympathy, through suffering with that individual. And it takes a decided action, and attitude on your part to say, how can I arrange myself so as to know and be known in this affliction? Third word for you, third uh, coat hook to hang some things on here. Peter uses the word that we know as Philadelphia, which... Uh, If you have ever traveled to Philadelphia, you know that they trumpet that it is the city of brotherly love. Well, that's what Philadelphia means. It literally means brotherly love. And that's how it's translated here in your Bible, to love one another as brothers. And we can read that as, as sisters as well. There is mutual submission and mutual respect that the scriptures have been calling us to. And in this case, you see how those things really grow up out of a mutual love for each other. I'll make this point again, that every believer is united to Christ in whom there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, but we are all one in Christ, we are all, in this case, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I would ask you to just think about your own family, and hopefully, I'll, I'll use a, a positive example of this. You might have negative examples here, but perhaps you can think of a time when your brother or sister helped you. Now, I've seen this sometimes in our own congregation. I've seen uh, uh, Ezra and Ethan helping out their younger brother and sister. I've seen Jason showing interest in the little ones that are around around him, and how he voices concern for his siblings. Maybe you experienced this in your life. Perhaps you can remember a time when your brother or sister stood up for you against a bully. Maybe they, they came and stood beside you when others were laughing at you. Maybe they just helped you up when you fell down. There's an instinct at work there, right? They did that because they're family. This is what family does. We take care of our own. We take care of our blood. How shameful it is when brothers and sisters in Christ tear one another down. The world knows better. How shameful it is when those that are one in Christ gossip about each other, impugn their motives. How how shameful it is when we are consumed by jealousy or anger or vindictiveness and turn on each other, like wild animals. Brotherly love keeps you in step with the spirit. Brotherly love is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You've ever memorized that. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit is love. Goes on from there. To love one another is to be in step with the Spirit. To love one another is to follow the command and the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Here, can't you just hear Peter applying these words of Jesus Christ? This is what the Lord has done. He set you to be a light in the world by the way that you relate to each other. By our submission to Christ, by our mutual love and understanding and and submission to one another, by this all will know that you are my disciples. They will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Philadelphia. Fourth word, the fourth hook that I'll give to you is the word tender-hearted. Uh, that's the it's a word that's used here in your Bible, but I want I wanted to point out how Greek is very descriptive. The word is actually having good bowels <laughs> down here, and uh, the reason for that is in the ancient world. Here is where the emotions resided. That came from having good bowels. So good things would come out of your bowels. (laughs) And we're a little more anatomic in thinking of bowels. And so in English translations, they've been right to put it in a word that we understand. For us, emotion comes from the heart. And out of the heart comes these uh, these good things and evil things, but out of the heart, uh, Peter says to have a tender heart. To be, uh, to be good in your heart to your brothers and sisters. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 4. You may know this verse as well. Maybe you've memorized it. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. The point that Paul and Peter are making is that God has been kind to you. God has shown you mercy rather than executing the judgment that we justly deserve. He has forgiven your sins in Jesus Christ. I draw, drew your attention to the warning that that is given in the Lord's Prayer that if you do not forgive others' sins, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. point is that we have been forgiven much, And having been forgiven much, we, in turn, practice what we have received. We show mercy. We show kindness. We are tender-hearted to those around you. Once again, let me ask, does this sound like submission? We live in a dog-eat-dog world, don't we? We live in a world where you're trained To look out for number one, and that's me, to the exclusion of everybody else. Don't let anyone take advantage of you. And if you have an advantage, press it. Press it. Make everyone around you bend to your will and submit to what you want. Kindness is a weakness, that's what the world says. That's what submission implies in many people's eyes and ears. If you adopt that mentality, let me ask, how is that working out for you? It's not a very pleasant life, is it? It is a life of dog-eat-dog, and it will consume you. It's an approach to relationship that is cold-blooded and hard-hearted. Path of Christ. Path of Christ is tender-hearted. It shows mercy. It shows forgiveness to those around you, especially towards those of faith. I quoted from Ephesians 4 earlier, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. It goes on, and Paul says, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, the way in which we keep in step with Christ and how we are a light to the world around us, it is to be, Tender-hearted. The fifth word, fifth hook I'll give you, is the word humble. Now the Bible translate this word as courteous, and uh, which is a correct translation. I, I, I do prefer the way other uh, translations put it here. That there is a a humility that is part of the Christian life. A humility of the Christian life. of that, w- that would be the opposite of arrogance or of pride, of thinking of your own self before you think of the needs of others. And humility is hard to understand. It seems as if maybe all of our sins go back to the root of, of our of our own selfish idolatry. We put ourselves in the place of God, and that then makes us arrange the world around me. I imagine that this was very hard for Peter to learn. Think back with me about Peter's life. He and the other disciples were Jesus' right-hand men, personally picked by the Messiah to be there with him. Can you imagine how heady it was for them to enter into Jerusalem to the shouts of the people around Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here they are, entering into Jerusalem, making way for the king, assembled around him as his chosen right hand men. And then they go into the upper room to celebrate the Passover. A privilege and an honor, an intimate relationship. And what does Jesus do? He blows their minds by laying aside all things, by laying aside earthly things. He took off his outer cloak and he put on clothing of a servant. And he went and he washed the disciples' feet. Work of a servant. Remember, Peter? You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus' act there was a, a symbol of his humility in all of life. The very fact that the Son of God would become man was. An act of humiliation, an act of humility. Philippians 2 said he humbled himself, taking on himself human nature, the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself to obedience of the death on the cross. And all of this to press upon us to have in ourselves the mind of Jesus Christ, who is not grasping after these things. And he says, you have this mind as well. But in all humility, do not think of your own needs, but the needs of of others. Humility is this type of arranging yourself in the order that God has placed around us so as to serve one another. Rather than to be served... Jesus came to serve. And if you watched the coronation of King Charles yesterday, you heard those words. They were quoted from the gospel to describe their concept of the king as a role of service. Mirroring Jesus Christ. Whether or not he or we live that out is is our responsibility, but that's what we are called to, to humility, to serving one another rather than being served. Finally, (laughs) I'll use that word, this is my final point. (laughs) I'm going to draw together the last four verses here under one heading, And that heading is blessing. It comes from the text here. And instead of one word that Peter uses, he actually expands on the way in which our relationship with each other is a blessing to others. It calls attention to the ways in which that negates certain things. Listen again to the words that are given here. I, excuse me, um, that text here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, and uh, I've been doing this all through the letter that Peter has, but Peter's once more interacting with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five forty four. but I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Everybody knows that. But God has called you. God has set you to be a light in the world around you. You are radically different. Because you are loved by God and you love him. Because he has drawn you into his family and you are in submission to him. And it's shown, then, to the world in the way that you react to one another. You react to to one another by not returning evil for evil, not reviling when you have been reviled, but contrary to all of that, you bless those who curse you. We often rush to say that this is how we ought to relate to the world. But, dear brothers and sisters, if that's true for your enemies outside of the church, it is even more important that this is the way you ought to live with those who are inside the church. Not returning evil for evil. Not reviling Blessing, even when sinned against. God has called you to this. Peter's used that word several times in this letter. In chapter one Gird up your mind. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. He who has called you is holy. Therefore, be holy as he is holy. Chapter two You are a chosen generation, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Then chapter 2, in context of submission to masters, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. So what is that calling? Well, Jesus bids you to come and follow him. He bids you to take up your cross and follow him. He calls you to die to yourself, all of your selfish interests, to live for him and in this context to be a blessing to those around you. So Peter then quotes from Psalm 34 as something of a summary of this thought. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. There's that concept of of not returning evil for evil or reviling. Let him turn away from his evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's the concept of blessing those that use you wrongly. To seek peace and to pursue it. And those instructions are given as the calling of God. As you are born again, born from above, that you would live these things out in your relation to God and in humble reliance on His grace, as you desire to give your account with joy at the last great day. Does that sound familiar? Jody just affirmed that covenant promise today. We seek to live this out in reliance upon Christ. And there is a last great day. There is a reward. God has called you to submit to him. That submission shapes how you react. But there is also blessing that is a return for that as well. You are called to this. But you are also called that you might inherit a blessing. That blessing of eternal life. That's where Psalm 34 closes. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You are known by God, and you know him. He sees you. He hears you. You are Identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. There isn't anything that this world can do to change that. Nothing. Did you hear that? You belong to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, live in submission to him. He has called you to himself. He has called you to this. He has set you as a light to the world. The way in which you live together as a congregation reflects that glory of God that you have received. May we pursue that wholeheartedly. May we pray for it. May we labor for it. And we demonstrate it in being Philadelphia, being tender-hearted, being humble, of being sympathetic, being harmonious. Amen. Let's pray. God, forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for those sins that so easily entangle us. Forgive us for the sins that we commit against you and against one another. Lord, we, we are a stiff-necked people. And as a people, we ask your forgiveness we pray, God, that we would hear these words today and recognize that you have given us an inheritance that can't be taken away, that you have been gracious towards us, that you have been merciful and forgiving, and as we have received this, oh God, I pray that we would put that into practice with each other. I pray, God, that every one of us would pursue this. We would earnestly pray for it in the midst of our congregation. We would think and think again about biblical unity and submission. May we see it as a glorious reflection of who you are and what we've received. May we enjoy that beautiful, complex harmony that we have as we submit to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing the words that Peter quotes using Psalm 34, Selection C. And may it be a rejoicing that the Lord sees us and hears us. That that we have tasted, that we have seen, we have known these mercies of God. And may it be a prayer then that we would show the same to one another in in obedience to Christ. Psalm 34C, please stand to sing.